G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. This comes from Don Carson. If the heart of sinfulness, so if the heart of sinfulness is self-centeredness, the heart of all biblical religion is God-centeredness. In short, it is worship. Um, Folks, over these three weeks, starting with this week, um, we're embarking on a series of sermons on this wonderful topic of worship. But I want to say, wonderful though it may be, worship is kind of prickly, actually, when you get down to it. Um, it's, It's the reason that some people cite, isn't it, the worship, for leaving a particular church. Haven't we heard that from time to time? It's the reason that they cite when they're leaving, uh, the worship, in this case meaning the music, or the songs, the bandcraft, or song choice or whatever, the worship wasn't real at that church. It is so much better, so much more authentic, so much more who knows what over here, and so off they go. Um, worship is the reason that some Christians, at bottom, develop a sense of pride, I think, over against other believers, because our way of doing worship, you know, now using the word to mean more like, you know, kind of liturgy or traditions or the form of church or you, how you run your services or whatever. Um, our worship, my traditions, our roots, our church at least has a real richness, a real depth. There is substance there, not like those Christians over there. You see, there's this ugly pride that crops up around worship. For others, worship is kind of the reason that they wouldn't even bother, I wonder if some of us are like that, uh, that we wouldn't even bother coming to church at all. Um, Because can't I worship God wherever I am? Why do I need the church? Why do I need traditions or or the music for that matter at all? Can't I worship God wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, in my little way, in my own time, do you see? At the empirical level, writes Don Carson... The sad fact of contemporary church life is that there are so sorry is that there are few subjects calculated to kindle more heated debate than the subject of worship. All sides claim to be God-centered. The moderns think the traditionalists defend comfortable and rationalistic truths they no longer feel, while the stalwarts from the past fret that their younger contemporaries are so enamored of hyped experience that they care not a whit. For truth, and on and on and on, you see the heat in uh, discussions surrounding worship. Brothers and sisters, guests, and friends uh, today, I don't think we need to fear having a, a hearty discussion together about worship. Um, I don't think we need to fear disagreeing with one another um, about worship. I think we'll be able to, we'll, I think we'll be made richer and fuller and better in the process of it. But may I say this our starting point on worship. It isn't going to be song lists over these three weeks. It's not going to be a liturgy or a not liturgy. It's not going to be confessional documents or traditions. It's not going to be my opinions or my tastes or my preferences enshrined in sort of holy writ from the pulpit. No, our starting point is God's word to us today. If the heart of sinfulness is self-centeredness, the heart of biblical religion 
is God-centredness. In short, it is worship. So um, if you care even a bit to figure out for once and for all in your life the essentials of what worshipping God is all about, please come with me over these three weeks, will you? This week, the true worshippers. Next week, where we worship. And third week, how uh, to worship. Three weeks, the who, the where and the how. Um, If you miss a week, you can catch it up on the podcast. But for now, let's pray and then we'll dive straight in. Let's pray, please. Father, we, we read these spectacular words today in your word. This, we read this call to worship the God of, of heaven and earth. We read, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. God, there are times when our hearts and our feelings are very much there and there are times when they are lacking. But God, you are there all the time and we are here all the time. And so would you please teach us over these three weeks the big picture of what worship and life and true spirituality are all about and whichever of those camps that we fall into, traditional or contemporary, church goer or occasional visitor, may we learn from your word to scrutinise our decisions and our preferences and our lives, me included, and by your spirit, may we make lasting change. That we spend not our lives simply trotting out old habits, continuing in well-worn ruts, but rather giving worship to our living and true God. And we ask it in Jesus' name, please. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're headed first of all. If ever there was a passage to help us zoom out, zoom right out, get our heads right out of the kind of turf war uh, to a clearer, grander, bigger view on worship, out of our little turf wars, here it is, Matthew chapter 4. I hope you're joining me uh, with it. It'll come on the screen. The context is Jesus' baptism, actually. Uh, At the very end of chapter 3, a voice calls from the heavens. It says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And chapter 4, verse 1 begins, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert, the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Just notice the premise there, the basis If you are the Son of God, like that voice from heaven said 40 days ago. In this case, why don't you use your power and your privilege for yourself to satisfy that burning hunger, Jesus? Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, and he quotes God's word back at Jesus, Satan does. He will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What's that? It's kind of, it's testing. It's twisting God's arm, isn't it? If he truly loves you, O beloved son, like the voice from heaven said, 
Well, then he'd never let his son come to harm, would he? Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But now's the clincher, the bit that I really want to focus on. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Satan says to the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, before I read verse 10, let me remind you of a bigger search that Satan's temptations here are plugging into. Uh, The big search of which I'd want to say, I think we are all a part, even now, even today, even us. Because this isn't the first time that we've seen Satan tempting a son of God whose belly was rumbling. Do you remember Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15? Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And chapter 3 verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals God placed in the garden. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I guess I'm wanting us to see that Satan is playing here a game that he is well acquainted with. Uh, And in some sense, I'd want to say the story of the whole Bible and the story of every single human life, ours included, is a search for a true worshipper. Will I find in this human being In Adam, in Eve, in Jesus, in you. Will I find in this human being, will you find in your life under God, a man or a woman who wants, who puts God ahead of appetites, ahead of self, ahead even of life? Genesis 3 verse 6, of course. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Indulge me, would you please, um, in just another example. So fast forward, from Genesis, I mean, uh, fast forward to the age when the people of Israel were holed up in Egypt. Um, Pharaoh, you remember, okay, the brutal slave master, and and Israel, the enslaved nation, um, with nothing but a few ancient, um, feeble-looking ancestral promises. Uh, Israel, the enslaved nation, with nothing but hearts full of unanswered prayers. Listen to this. Hear now God's instructions to Moses before things kind of got out of hand. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21, we read, The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh and... Sorry. When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've given you the power to do. But I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh... This is the bit that I want you to concentrate on, okay? Then say say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says... Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go. Israel, God's son. 
Let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son and you know the rest of the story of the Exodus. Do you get that? Why the Exodus? Why the plagues? Why the grand sea crossing across the Sea of Reeds? What on earth is God trying to achieve? What is he looking for from all of that? Let my son go so he may worship me. Do you see the search? Do you know God's plan for human life in this world? That he'd find sons and daughters who are free to worship him, who are free from sin, who are free from slavery. Let them go. Let them worship. Exodus 7, 16, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Exodus 8, verse 1, let my people go so that they may worship me. 8, verse 20, let my people go so that they may worship me. Chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 13, 10, verse 3, on it goes. And sadly, of course, as soon as they got out into the wilderness, well, this is interesting, actually. So God got them out of Egypt. Israel, his precious worshipping son, those million people or so out there in the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Have you got the image there? The people are gathered around the mountain. Moses is, is on his way up the mountain and God is calling to him from this cloud that, uh, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain and then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain and he, Moses, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So God's son, Israel, are now 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness waiting to worship God. And we read a few chapters later what happened. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, that Aaron's Moses' brother. The people gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, perhaps it's a long-winded way of saying it, but where, oh where, is a rigidage authentic child of God, devoted to him, delighted in him in this world. And back with Satan then, ah, Satan, he knows human nature, what we wouldn't do to satisfy a craving, how at ease we feel twisting God's arm with our own petty little agendas and who hasn't bowed down to a few altars along the way when it has meant a little empire of our very little own. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. See, some folks, they they try to turn it back on God. 
um, as if God is being neurotic, you know, searching for worshippers, like as if God has got some kind of ego problem. Why is he so hung up about being worshipped, some critics say? But folks, God made us. He made us, his sons and daughters, to live enlightened lives, to love what is good, uh, lives that adore our good God, that live for what is true, that know evil when we see it, that hate the bad, that hate and reject it, uh, that call it what it is, that tell it to go back where it came from, to devote our lives to something bigger and better than ourselves. And so here we are. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is saying, hold your breath, humankind. Hold your breath, all you who have fallen short in your lives, all who have wished for a better, for a more real, a more alive connection with the God of the universe and wondered, is it even possible? It's saying, hold your breath, because here comes a son with a body full of hunger, like yours and like mine, and he is about to be put to his mettle. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Why do we begin our series on worship here? It's this really simple reason. It's because apart from Jesus, there has never been a true worshipper in all of history, in all of the world. And we have to start with that. You have never, you can never, and you will never worship the Lord your God and serve him only under your own steam. And we need to start there. The question of who worships God has to come before any questions about whether or not you go to church or how often you go to church or whether or not you sing when you're there. Um, who worships has to come before rich liturgy or authentic spontaneity. It has to come before contemporary feels or deep tradition or some marriage of the two. For in the New Testament, writes Robert Doyle, in the New Testament, um, uh, Robert Doyle is a Tasmanian, uh, now retired theologian. For in the New Testament, worship is not so much something we do, but it is first of all and mainly something Jesus Christ does for us. It is mindless pettiness, isn't it, brothers and sisters, when we Christians rate our worship against one another. Uh, that of churches or Christians around trying to push ourselves ahead or trying to shop around for the best experience. You may know nothing else about worship, but know this this morning, the one true worshipper is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no true worship apart from him. There are no true worshippers besides him. You will find no new and important modes or methods or models outside of this one man, Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear. Every other son of God, from Adam through Israel to today, failed. Until this man, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Now, before I move to a conclusion, uh, together with a, a slightly more positive um, note, may I quickly share a quick story, a little fable, um, a once upon a time. So once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. Have you heard this one? Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So, as the gardener turned to go, the king said, Wait! You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of ground, a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely, as a gift, so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse that I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, and so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you... We're giving yourself the horse. Folks, how many times, you know, the topic for today is worship and true worshippers. How many times have we bought ourselves a horse when what God really wanted was our hearts? How many times have we bought ourselves a horse when what God really seeks from sons and daughters isn't a horse, he wants our hearts? We dress all sorts of things up as worship, but there's only one thing that matters. Uh, now, finally, I know we've read quite a bit already today, but I've got one last journey for us to take. Uh, this one has a little bit of hope in it for us, as I said. Would you please come with me to Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10. It's a book of contrasts. Uh, Hebrews, uh, old and new, um, then and now. Hebrews 10, in particular, contrasts um, two ways of worship. Um, or, or better, two ways of becoming worshippers, actually, uh, which is our topic for today. Uh, so the old, uh, the then, probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It's the Old Testament sacrificial system, you know, blood and animals and altars and all the rest, and then you can come and be a worshipper of God. But take a look, chapter t- uh, 10, verse 1 of Hebrews, the law, um, including all of its requirements about sacrifice. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, the Old Testament law, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered, the sacrifices? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, 
when Christ came into the world, all right, here is the now. He said, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you weren't pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. So first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Just that last bit. Here, here's you and me. Jesus came to do God's will. And with all this sacrifice business around this, it's obviously a reference to his death. Okay, verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the bloody, sorry, of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Folks, we have a lot more to say about worship in the coming weeks, about how to worship, about where to worship, but make no mistake, we in Christ, we wayward and wandering and worthless in terms of worship on our own, we have been made holy through Jesus to serve God as his children forevermore. The call is, no matter what it means and no matter what your life has been to date, resolve to devote the rest of your life to worship the Lord my God and serve him only, just as our Lord Jesus did. Can we pray together?